welcome back to Art Watch Podcast. I hope you had a wonderful week. I know Halloween was this past weekend. I hope you were able to stay safe from all of those big crowds. And if you did go out, hopefully you wore that wonderful, wonderful mask. Um, so today's going to be kind of a quick episode. Things are rather busy on my end, um, but it's also pertinent to what I'm going to be talking about. So we are at that spooky time of year. Yes, I know Halloween is apparently still on the brain, but that's okay. It's that time of year. We all dread it. It's nobody's favorite task, writing essays. But unfortunately, writing essays is part of college and definitely part of art history. <laughs> um, so I'm going to start out and try and gear it more towards an undergraduate audience because I know some of my listeners are actually getting ready to teach or they're TAs and it might actually be helpful for many of their students. But I'll also throw in like more, um, I guess, like tips and tricks for master's students. As far as PhD goes, I'm still figuring it out myself, so I I can do my best to help, but <laughs> I am definitely not a pro. Um, Okay, so first things first, look over that syllabus, like, five times. Please, like, read it. Half half the time, I feel like professors will, especially for, like, those survey art history courses, they will absolutely, most definitely, nine times out of ten, tell you exactly what they're looking for. How to write the paper itself, how they want you to format it, what type of citations, if any, you should be using, because I know early on in semesters, typically professors will do, like, more of a visual analysis, or often also called formal analysis, so you don't necessarily need any citations, but now that it's towards the end of the semester, chances are you are going to need at least one or two, maybe five sources, depending on how, how long your paper is, but look at the type of assignment that it is. Are you comparing two paintings? Are you doing a cultural analysis of that, or of a cultural analysis of that work? It doesn't necessarily have to be a painting. I don't know why I said painting. I think it's mostly because I look at paintings. So that's the thing. What type of object are you going to be looking at? Is it sculpture? Is it a painting? Is it a photograph? You know, there's like, I feel like there's endless types of objects that you could be looking at. Um, but it also depends on the type of class that it is and the period that you're looking at. Um, so yeah, figure out the type of paper that it is first, which will help you create the format. Now, if you're doing a comparison between two objects, they might be the same medium, but they come from different cultures, or it could come from the same culture in different time periods. So what you should be looking at are what are the similarities between those? And what are the differences? Now, I like to kind of look at this first. I know a lot of people like to start with their thesis statement first, which is absolutely important. And you 100% should spend a ton of time on that thesis because once it's organized, it's going to help you write the paper. But I'm going to get into that in a second. I'm, I like to think like very broadly when I'm first attacking a paper. At least I did when I was in my survey classes and it helped a lot. So identify what type of object it is, what the culture is that it's coming from, and the time period that it was made. Because chances are that's going to be a big influence on how you're going to finish writing that paper. So once you have that done, again, keep referring back to your syllabus. <laughs> Every professor wants something different. 
now that you have like this sort of general idea, you can kind of go into the thesis. And what I liked to do was I pick three of the main topics that I'm going to look at, especially for an undergraduate paper. Try and keep it to about three to four. Um, you can tweak your thesis a bit. It kind of depends on the writing level. So if you feel like you're able to get your point across by giving a general statement, um, just know that it might make it a little bit more difficult to keep your paper organized. So if you're in, if this is your very first art history class that you've ever taken, sometimes it's helpful, like, you decide you're going to look at the material that it's made from. Um, uh, the, like, if it's a religious object, what role does it play in that society? And time period. How, how is this indicative of the time period? And let's say your professor gives you a couple objects to choose from and they're already paired off. So recently I had a student who was given a paper. They were comparing um, an Egyptian bust with, um, it was this, it was a Maya, like, not, it was like a piece of a stele. It didn't have a title or anything, but basically it was a profile of a male figure. And so you're given these two objects that are from completely different cultures, completely different time periods, but that doesn't mean that they don't have similarities. So one of the things that they have in common is it's a representation of the human form. Now, the bust is in the round, whereas the Maya object, it wasn't. It was, since it was from a stele, it would have been like a very, very low relief sculpture. Um, so yeah, you can talk about that. And then you can say, okay, well, what are the materials they're using? And how d how are they treating that material? How does the culture treat it? And this could be, is it painted? Um, in the case of the 3D object, why is it 3D? Where was it found? And then in the case of the 2D object, why did this culture stick mostly in, in like a very low relief um, versus something that might be three-dimensional? or more dimensional, because technically it is three-dimensional. Anyway, <laughs> that's beside the point. And then you can think about possibly where was this object found? Because where an object is found actually tells us a lot about the culture. So chances are these objects, in this case, it was very true. These were found in burial sites um, and it would have been somebody of the upper class. So you can look at that original context, and those are three great starting points. Now, that's not to say that those are the only topics you can talk about. It's just a couple to kind of get the ideas flowing. Think about what you've talked in class. How has your professor formatted the class discussion? What sort of things are they asking you to do? And in your previous papers, what has the professor looked for? Um, those early papers will actually help inform how you tackle your final paper or your midterm. Um, I know some classes might be doing midterms now. Gosh, it's just test season and nobody likes to get tested. I mean, I hate taking tests, but here we are. And now I'm in like my third degree and I guess I, I guess I just like uh, self-torture. Anyway, <laughs> so think about what your professor is asking you and you don't want to write like to please the professor in the sense that you're writing what you think they want to hear. Like, don't be a kiss ass. <laughs> um, but use the tools they've given you in class to practice your own art historical writing. I mean, that's what the goal is. And it's okay if you make mistakes. 
nobody's perfect. I make mistakes all the time in my papers. Recently, I got a review back and oof, it was bad. I mean, but that's okay. Like, that's part of writing. It's okay to not have a perfect grade because, um, like I said, writing is absolutely never perfect. I have graded so many papers. Like, sometimes my brain wants to explode. But, I mean, there's gonna be- there's that one student that you can tell they just paid attention in class. And their paper is great. I mean, now that doesn't mean they're gonna get like the highest A, but I mean, there's something you, I don't know, there's something in the way that a student writes who, even if it's not their major, because especially in those survey classes, I think it's one that every single student has to take, but you can tell that they were at least listening to the professor and they were, they were trying to do what they've learned and they were trying to implement those ideas into this paper and really experiment with that comparison between objects. Or if it's only looking at one object, they really tried to get into that cultural history of the object. Now, of course, like there, like, you know, there are some students that um, they really struggle and you can tell um, after being a grader, I can honestly tell you, we really just want you, we want you to do the best that you can. And we're not gonna, like, especially in those entry-level classes, we're not like, oh my gosh, this is terrible, like, this student shouldn't be in college, blah blah blah, like, no, like, nobody's gonna do that. I mean, we know that this is probably one of the first papers that you're writing for college, and a lot of times, at least I like to do, I always try and, like, I'll highlight the good things that a student has done, and then I'll tell them, okay, this was good, but it needs to be tweaked in a way that makes it a little better. And I'll give them an example. Now, of course, like, if you have your professor or, like, the TA of the class, there's just, like, marks, comments everywhere. Take a step back from that, like, from your previous paper that you turned in. Look at the comments they gave you and read along with your paper and those comments. And see how you can improve for the next one. Because I have had so many students in the past that... If they had just read the comments that were given to them, their paper could have been improved. I mean, it's the little things that really do count when you're writing. So yeah, like, if you if you try and, like, stay on topic, keep going back to the main idea, your thesis, right? It'll help you stay accountable throughout the body of your paragraph. So, like, your first paragraph, if you're going for the more, like, um, formulaic, I guess, like... My thesis says, it's from this culture, we know that, because of X, Y, and Z. So X should be your first body paragraph, and you're going to talk about it. Um, why is it important? What does this tell us about this object? What does it tell us about the culture? And then you're going to have a transition sentence. Then you're going, you're going to go into topic Y. Make sure your topic sentence is good. A lot of times students will struggle if their topic sentence is a week, chances are the paragraph is going to be a little bit disorganized. So really think about what you want to say and how you want to say it. And even if you like, it doesn't have to be perfect. I mean, again, nobody's writing is perfect. But at least how, how is this one thing going to, or what is this one thing going to tell us about this object? And then as you're going along the paper, connect it back to your previous idea. Keep connecting and it's just going to make your, your writing a little bit stronger. And then once you get into that final paragraph, so you're going to have your final topic sentence and it, I feel like this is difficult to say over like a, like a, not a visual format. 
So what you want your paper to do, start broad. It's like a funnel, right? So as you're going further into the paper, it's slowly getting more specific. And as long as you're kind of keeping with that idea throughout your paper, your final pair, your final body paragraph, it's different than your conclusion paragraph. What it should do, it, you're introducing this new idea and you're also connecting it back to your previous ones that you've brought in. So if you've talked about maybe form, the culture, its original setting, whatever, whatever, whatever. How is this all culminating into this one, like, minutia of an idea? And then you're, you really just want to drive that point home. Keep referring back to the object and keep referring back to those ideas. Now, there's a difference between referring back to and being repetitive. Like, don't just say the same thing over and over again. Like, if you said, this is red because of the pigment that they used was from a certain type of bug, which is, it's actually pretty common for that to happen. Um, <laughs> that's another point, though. Um, and then you don't want to say it, like, two sentences later, well it's red because of the same bug. And okay, great, it's red because of the bug, but why is this bug significant to the production of this object? Is this is this specific pigment used by, let's say, the lower class? If it's not, why isn't it used by the lower class? Um, if it's an ancient object. Um, or if it's a modern or contemporary object, what does the, like, brushstroke say about the person? Are they doing a more academic style? Are they doing a more avant-garde style? Um, and avant-garde in the sense that it's before it becomes accepted by the academy. And if you are not familiar with what the broad academy is, basically it's just the accepted way of teaching art. And that's pretty, that's like, I feel like that's the most simplistic way. And the avant-garde is like, ah, oh, we're tired of this old academy, we're gonna introduce something new. And then the academy's like, that's garbage. And they're like, you're garbage. And so it's this little duel, and then like 20 years later, the academy is like, all right, we'll take it. It's, it's not that bad. And then it's just this vicious cycle. <laughs> and then, okay, so now that you kind of, I know this is like super, super quick, um, but now that you kind of have, like, the route that your paper has gone, in your conclusion paragraph, you don't want to just restate what you said in the introduction. Because the introduction, you might have been introducing the culture, you might have been introducing the period, or something else. And you're basically, in introduction, right? Intro. You're just introducing the idea. Your conclusion you kind of, you want to tie things up, but you don't necessarily have to restate your thesis, like, quite literally. You can say, because of all of these aspects that I've explored, don't use I, I know I'm using I right now, I, oh man, I'm probably going to confuse you with that. I'm so sorry. Um, you can say, because of the various aspects analyzed um, within the frames of this paper, we as, or you can say instead of we, historians can understand that this object comes from this region because the style that it was using, the time period that it was made, whatever your examples were, right? Or if you're comparing two objects, they're different because whatever reasons, and this is something that historians study because whatever. And then you sort of wrap up the idea. You don't have to, like, reconvince your reader that 
your points are perfect because by the end of your paper you should have already convinced the reader. Um, even if your paper isn't necessarily an argumentative paper, chances are there's still something that you're trying to convince the reader of or at least point the reader like, okay, well, this is, this is an Aztec object because of whatever. And so while it's not like you're not like creating some grand thesis, you're ripping the boards of the establishment apart. No, you're just, you're, you're pointing them and like, we know that this is Aztec because where it was found, the materials that were used, was there any carbon dating that you know of, whatever. Um, so yeah, your conclusion for this very like simple style paper, it doesn't have to be perfect, but please, please don't just give me two sentences. I've had so many students, like they'll just give me a sentence and I was like, great, I mean, you're not entirely wrong, but like just take take a couple beats to really like flesh it out and that's just gonna help your grade go so much higher. Hopefully. I hope so. And if you feel like you're struggling, I know that at least at um, my old institution there was an art history writing fellow and it was a graduate student. I'm pretty sure, I think they still do that. Um, but they're there to help you and so these these students or sometimes in the writing center, it, it kind of varies at the broad university writing center because they're meeting like so many majors. But in the case of like the art history writing fellow, they're really there to help you. And they're in contact with all of those survey teachers. Chances are like if they're not grading for them, they know the people that are grading for them and they can say, hey, this is what we're looking for. Can you please help the students out? I know I asked the writing fellow to do that so many times and they were great at it. But the problem was is students weren't taking advantage of it. It's free. Your tuition paid for it. Do it. It's going to help you in the long run. And um, yeah, I mean, like your paper is just going to be so much more organized. They're really going to help you figure out how to write that argument. I know that this was like this brief undergraduate um, like theory idea of a paper was super, super quick. But I mean, like, again, every professor is different. They're looking for something different and your writing fellow, if you have one, they're going to know exactly what that professor is looking for and they're going to be able to help you create a paper that is really strong. Um, that's, I mean, they're a grad student for a reason, you know, and like you're, you're going to them because you want that A. Um, don't expect a hundred though, because nobody usually gets hundreds. And I think, I think I only gave out like in the two years that I was grading papers, I think I gave out like a total of three 100s and it was just because like the student either they were just like beautiful beautiful writers or they were going to see the writing fellow and their paper was just fantastic and I mean like minus a couple spelling errors but I mean we all have moments like that it's okay but yeah like use the sources that you have on your campus and it's just gonna help you out so so much more and your writing is gonna be a lot stronger because of it another thing to keep in mind don't wait until the last minute. I know we all think, oh man, I can do that in like two weeks. It's fine. It's due in two weeks. And then like one, like a week and a half passes and you're like, oh crap, I still have to write that paper. And so you rush it out. And like, as an undergrad, like, I'll be honest, I did it too. I mean, you could, you could get away with it more in your introductory classes than you can in your upper level classes. But if you even take like I actually recently went to the writing center because 
I myself have been struggling between the transition of a master's writing level and a PhD writing level. And they were like, break it down into chunks. And I was like, oh man, I always tell myself I'm going to do that. And then I never do. And so this time I wrote it in my planner that I was going to do it. And they were like, even if it's just 30 minutes a day and like you time out that 30 minutes, you have a, an alarm on your phone, timer, whatever it is, do that, stick to it when it's done. Even if you feel like you can keep going, take a couple minutes at least and then give yourself a break. Make a note of like the ideas of where you were going so you don't lose track. But at least if you know that you're busy, even 30 minutes a day, that's all you need. And if your paper only has to be like five pages, sometimes, you know, that 30 minutes is going to be super productive and you're like, wow, I cranked out like three pages. Other times you're like, I wrote three sentences, but that's okay. I mean, you're, you're taking, you're taking the time, you're making it in manageable chunks. And when you do that, you're going to be one less stressed, especially around finals. I know we all hate finals periods because as an undergraduate, not only do you have essays due, you have tests. And like I said at the beginning, nobody likes tests. We all hate it. If you like tests, please like teach me your ways because I hate tests. <laughs> um, but yeah, like break it down and it's really just gonna, one, you'll have time to review everything. You can go see that writing fellow. You can have them look over your paper. And if you don't have a writing fellow, you can at least take it to the writing center. They'll do more like big ideas because again, they're working with like a bunch of different types of majors, but they'll at least be able to know like, wow, this isn't my field. I still think it makes sense. And then they'll be able to look at your syllabus and kind of give you an idea of whether or not you may have done what your professor was asking you to do. Now for more upper class um, papers, still kind of stick with that theme of is your thesis organized? You know, have you done like the broad, like this is what this object is, has, like here's my visual analysis for it. Um, I know chances are in your upper class uh, art history courses, your professor will, at least like one of my professors did this and I absolutely loved it. They'll have you do um, a visual analysis paper and then you'll build up on that. And then for your next paper, it will be like, I think it was like a, um, like the cultural context. And then your third paper, which is your final paper, it like combined it all. So you were basically, all you were doing is you were building upon it step by step. And like in each essay, you would integrate the previous one. And so that way it was like more manageable throughout the semester. And you were able to have peer feedback or the writing center, um, art history fellow, whatever, whoever you were going to see. Sometimes it's a professor, um, not every professor will look at your paper before, but I know that there are some, if you meet them in office hours, they'll at least like kind of give it a look over and say, okay, this seems good or you need to work on this. Um, but it, for those upper class ones, so I, my university, it was like a 3000 or 4000 level class. I'm not really sure how it is at other universities, but once you get into those upper classes, a lot of times you'll have a paper that is like around eight pages. Sometimes it's like eight to 15, depending on whether it's a seminar course or a lecture course. And then what you'll want to do is you'll probably need a literature review, which is different than an annotated bibliography. So I'm going to pause for a second and then I'll get into what the difference is and how that'll help your paper. 
Alright, so the difference between a literature review and an annotated bibliography is actually quite significant. So think of the annotated bibliography as your notes for whatever source it was. I remember I had one due and it was like I needed 15 sources. Um, what information are you pulling from it? Why is it significant to your paper? Blah, 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 blah. About a paragraph for each one. Um, and then the literature review. So it was most helpful for me to think of it as how scholarship has developed over time. And what I did was, is after reading all of my sources, I, and like after taking all of those notes, because you know, you should be taking notes while you're reading. Um, <laughs> and I put it in chronological order. And then I said, okay, well, here was what their, this scholar's idea was about it. And then maybe 10 years later, this is what this one said about it. And they critiqued the previous one because of whatever reason. And so you kind of do this for the main sources. You don't need to do this for every single source that you're using, because sometimes you're just getting information <clears throat> on the more broad scale. But you want to pull from the ones that are really like talking about the, the piece critically or the period critically, whatever it is you're writing about. And so you'll put together that literature review after you've done your visual analysis and you're going to say, okay, well, here's the object, blah, blah, blah. I've written all this wonderful stuff about it. Here's what the scholarship has said. This is where it first developed and here's how it has changed over time. But the most important thing about a literature review is that you re-emphasize, well, all this scholarship is great. Here's what it missed and here's what I'm going to bring to the table. And... For your upper level classes and even your master's level classes, you're going to do this to varying degrees. So for undergraduates in like that junior, senior level class, you don't really necessarily have to get into what's called the method of the paper. So basically what type of, um, I'm going to use it again, what type of method is the, is the scholar using? Is it more psychoanalysis? Is it more um, formal, blah, 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 whatever you've learned in your seminar class about methods. I think at most universities, I think seniors have to take a methods class. I don't know. I know I did, and it was super great. Um, but as a master's student, and even now as a PhD student, basically what you're doing for that literature review portion is you're really just dissecting the methods of the previous scholarship, how it has applied to whatever it is you're looking at. Um, I know that's super vague because at this point, everybody's topics get a little bit more complex and much more nuanced and I don't want to say something that's going to throw you off track but basically you really want to drive home that point of wow that scholarship is good or if it wasn't why wasn't it good and then say um obviously like I, I feel like at the graduate level you can get away with using I a little bit more but you still want to avoid using it as much as possible um at least that's how I feel about it. I know that there are some professors that are okay with it, but most times you'll want to avoid using like personal references for whatever reason, whether it's yourself, somebody, you know, whatever. Um, so what is it that you are bringing to the table and why is it important? What's at stake? Um, I know that's super vague, but I had so many professors like asking me this, what's at stake? Why? Like, why are you bringing this to everybody's attention? Who was being impacted by, let's say if it was like a, a previous in, uh, interpretation of the work or the period or whatever it is you're looking at, why is it problematic? And 
how has this been perpetuated throughout the throughout scholar throughout scholarship gosh that was a really weird way to say that anyway how is the art historical word world perpetuating this and how are you going to change it so that's kind of what you think of when like what's at stake um because a lot of times when you're looking more at like the modern and contemporary period there is a marginalization of a group happening whether it's people of color indigenous populations women um, people that are in the LGBTQ plus community, there's something at stake and maybe it was the artist, maybe it was previous scholarship that has taken it for granted or they haven't looked at the problems that are within that period. Um, so you really, really want to make sure that you're bringing your own voice to the table in the sense that you're critiquing past scholarship, you're adding a different interpretation of that artist, of that work, of that period, whatever it is, again, you're looking at and why it, why your point is important. Um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's about as specific as I can get for an, un, for an upperclassman or for the master student, just because everybody's research is so different at this point. And, um, yeah, I mean, like, your approach really depends on one, how you've been trained, two, the field that you're working in, three, the time period that you're working in, and four, your own writing style. Everybody has a different style when you get into your master's and PhD level classes, so it it really depends on on that, and I, I don't want to say too much more about it. Um, but yeah, make sure that your literature review is really strong. And sometimes you'll maybe just want to do it like on the side. I know that sounds kind of crazy to like do extra work because like I, I absolutely hate doing extra work if I don't have to. <laughs> At least when it comes to writing. I mean, like don't like not go the extra mile to show like your professors or people that you care about it. Um, definitely do that. But you know, when you're in crunch time, you don't necessarily always have the time, like, oh, I'm gonna set this whole day aside and, like, create an entire literature review for all of my sources. No, like, you, you probably don't have the time to do that. I don't even have the time to do that. Um, but really think about how, how you want to change scholarship and where you want to take your research and where you want to take the field. Um, because that's what this is. Like, at this level, you are you we're the next generation of scholars and it's kind of terrifying but also kind of cool at the same time so yeah i mean really think about more like big big picture like still specific in the sense that like you're critiquing but big picture by meaning like again what's at stake um how is this going to change the field broadly and things like that um I hope that was helpful. <laughs> I know I said this was going to be a short episode and then now I'm looking at it and we're already at 31 minutes. But before I end, I wanted to talk about an artist that actually reached out to me um, on Instagram. So if you or someone you know has really awesome art or you want me to talk about it or at least give you a shout out, um, I am happy to do that. So you can just message me um, on social media. My handle on Instagram and Twitter is at artwatchpodcast, or you can email me. My Gmail is artwatchpodcast at gmail.com. I know I'm making that plug. So I was talking to this artist. Her name is Mary. She's from Belarus, and she's studying 
um, at the Belarusian National Technology or Technical University of Industrial Design. I think I said that right. And she's this really neat graphic artist. So I looked at her Instagram page and she has like all these fun characters. It's more of like, um, I guess you can say like an animated cartoon style. And she said that she really likes to um, focus on people and the different personalities. So she loves creating different types of characters, but she is really inspired by um, music and the people around her. So I will go ahead and include her Instagram handle in the bio of this episode. So check out her work. It's super cool. I really liked it. Um, yeah, if you have any artists that you want me to kind of shout out towards the end of an episode, just let me know and I'm happy to do that. Um, if you aren't already, make sure you follow me on Instagram and Twitter. Again, my handle is at artwatchpodcast. If you have any corrections or you want me to cover a certain topic, you can always email me, artwatchpodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to become a patron, I will drop the link below. And it should be patreon.com backslash artwatchpodcast. I think it's backslash. Whatever way you go when you normally type in a hand um, a website. I'm really bad at that. I should know better. I'm like, I was raised in the age of technology. Anyway, I hope you have a great weekend. I hope this essay topic was helpful. Um, if you have any corrections that you want me to make, just let me know. And yeah, hope you have a great weekend. <laughs>